0: Exodus chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding, on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for the poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight... He shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year, with the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Skip on down to verse 34. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stack tea and the onica and the galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each there shall be an equal part, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people.
1: Good morning, beloved. Visitors, we want to say welcome to you. I'll say welcome on behalf of those sitting around you. Invite you at a time of fellowship afterward in the fellowship hall just across the foyer. Uh, we've been studying through Exodus, um, I'll lose track, what is it, a year and a half? year and a half. And uh, here we are, over the past few weeks, have been studying the furnishings prescribed by God for the tabernacle itself. Instructions in its design given to Moses to be passed on from God himself as he spent 40 days atop Mount Sinai. One of the most striking things about Jesus' earthly ministry uh, was his devotion to prayer. We read in the Gospels that he spent all night in prayer on some occasions. That he would rise before the other disciples early in the morning before sunrise to go off and pray. The Gospels tell us that as Jesus' fame spread throughout the land, people came clamoring for his time, clamoring for his attention. And the Scripture says that he actually withdrew, unlike us who would draw near because we want to be famous, the most famous one withdrew, went away, and prayed. On another occasion, when he saw the crowds, he withdrew and sat down and taught his disciples what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, part of which includes teaching on prayer. See, his prayer life was so evident that on one occasion, in Luke chapter 11, as Jesus was praying in a certain place, the scripture says, when he finished, his disciples came to him and they said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. You see, they saw a correlation between the power of his ministry and his prayer life, the incarnate Son of God. They plainly recognized in the Lord something they didn't have, and they wanted it. So Jesus then replied by way of that model prayer, what we know as the Lord's Prayer, we should probably call it the Disciples' Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us and so on. That's a perfect model prayer. Not merely to be recited, although it's okay to recite it, but, it, but it's, a, it's an outline of how we ought to pray. It's a beautiful outline. Um, God regards prayer as so significant, and he always has, that he incorporated it into the old covenant forms of worship, way back. God designed this, that we've been looking at, the tabernacle for his people to worship him. And notice, he prescribes the methods. He prescribes them. And this is to meet with him in an acceptable, orthodox manner. Orthodox means correctly. There's a correct way to worship God. And there's an incorrect way. This is not man devised, but God prescribed for his old covenant people. Now, every piece of the furnishings, all the the furnishings and all their pieces within the tabernacle and outside of the tabernacle are intended to teach God's old covenant people, Israel, how they were to approach God. There's a specific way to approach him. To do otherwise was very dangerous. Have we not seen this thus far, beloved? Very dangerous. You will wake up dead. So it's designed, the tabernacle and all its furnishings were designed so as to restore that which was lost in Eden at the fall, and that, my friends, was holy ground. Holy ground where God dwelt with his people, those created in his image. Now, when Adam fell, God couldn't dwell with his people in a presence like that, or they'd be consumed by his holiness. That's why he had to drive them out of Eden and set cherubim there to protect the tree of life who would want to live forever as a sinner. So even in that, we see an act of God's mercy. So this is designed to restore that which was lost in Eden. And once again, that's holy ground. So all of these things, all of these furnishings, when we get to the new covenant in the book of Hebrews, we read that all of these things as designed by God are actually copies of heavenly things. So this tabernacle is a little picture, if you will, of heaven on earth, and it foreshadows that which is to be a new heaven and a new earth when Christ returns again, our glorious Redeemer. Now, ultimately, the tabernacle in the wilderness was designed by God to serve as a type, okay? A type of our Lord Jesus Christ, a type of the full accomplishment of of redemption by his blood, that's why, beloved, we, we, we don't say, well, the Old Testament, you know, it's so hard to understand. No, it's very simple. Everything in the Old Testament is designed to teach us about the promised one who's to come, Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he met those two distraught disciples on the road to Emmaus, what did he do? He taught from the Old Testament all the things concerning himself. From Moses, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, all the Old Testament scriptures speak about Him. He revealed Himself through Old Covenant writings. So, all of the ceremonies, all of the sacrifices, all of the furnishings, all of its parts, the parts, the priesthood, the priest's services, were all types of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Symbols of how it is that sinners can and must come to know God. And again, it's by God's way and not man's way. That's what we see here in this. Now, remember, there was the Holy of Holies. It was a perfect cube. The dimensions, 15 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. The most holy place. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. The the tablets of stone under the mercy lid, made of gold, two cherubims standing upon it to protect it, looking down, not up, but looking down on the mercy seat. The mercy seat that covered the broken law of God. God's people broke His law. Mercy. It's a picture of God's mercy covering God's broken law. That's the Holy of Holies. Then there's a large curtain. And then there's the holy place where the dimensions change. There, it was 30 by 15 by 15. Moving out from the holy place, there was the courtyard, 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, showing us gradations of holiness that exist within the tabernacle. That is, friends, gradations of separation from God. Moving outward, the dimensions are less perfect, and the materials used in each section from the most holy place to the holy place to the courtyard courtyard, go down in value. They're less costly the further you move away from the most holy place, which represented the very presence of God, the holy presence of Almighty God. Now, the people could only come into the courtyard and no further. There was a group of priests through certain ceremonies that can enter the holy place on behalf of the people, and then Only the high priest, but once a year, was able to go into the most holy place, again on behalf of the people. So entering into the courtyard was the bronze altar, where sacrifices of burnt offerings were made. You move in from that to the bronze basin, where after priests would make bloody atonement, they would wash in the basin. They would wash to literally clean the blood off themselves and ceremonially so that they were able to now step into the holy place again on behalf of the people. Entering into the holy place on the left was the golden lampstand, which illumined the whole room. On the right, the golden table of showbread with two stacks of six representing the twelve tribes of Israel representing God's people and how he provides for his people. Straight ahead was the thick curtain Behind it, the most holy place, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, the dwelling place of God. And yet, just before that curtain was this golden table of incense, the golden altar of incense, designed to teach us lessons about prayer. Lessons about prayer. Now, this is the last piece of furniture inside, inside that is described for us. And this morning, beloved, we want to do three things. First, I want us to look at the context as regards this um, altar of incense in in context to Old Covenant Israel. Secondly, I want us to see what it reveals about Christ. And then thirdly, what it means for us today. Okay, are you with me? (laughs) <laughs> that is to say, this week, this Lord's Day, we're going to look at the context of prayer, that is, the theology of prayer, and then next Lord's Day, when you come back, you're going to hear practical applications as regards prayer for the Christian today. You want to have a fervent prayer life, beloved, because God demands that you do. <laughs> Amen? So that's what we'll do. So first, let's look at the description. Here's the context for Old Covenant Israel. We see in verses 1 through 5, we see the what of the altar. It wasn't very large. It was 18 inches square. That is a foot and a half square by three feet high. It was made of acacia wood, a long-lasting, durable wood that was covered here with pure gold. There was a gold molding around it. It also had two rings with, with which it would be carried by a certain line of the priests of Israel. Like everything, in the, everything else in the tabernacle, it, it was designed to be portable. As God moved by way of the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, the priests would wrap up the tabernacle and all its furnishings and carry it as God designed and prescribed, and they would move on. And here, this table, this uh, golden altar of incense, uh, would hold a censer. It had coals in it with incense on top of the coals. Uh, as it would burn, it would fill the room. The holy presence of God. These are This represents the prayers lifted up to God, as we'll see. So, like the bronze altar outside, this one also had horns. Symbolic of power. Made as one piece on the four corners of this little 18-inch square altar. Now, its position shows us that as the priests served before this table, offering up this incense, they're standing before the face of God, who's behind the curtain in the most holy place. They were standing in front of God. Now, centuries later, when Solomon would build the glorious temple, we read in 1 Kings 6 this, Solomon overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid it with gold. So the golden altar of incense, though it wasn't in the most holy place, it was in the holy place, we see, we see the correlation and how close it was that it actually served the most holy place. The burning of the incense serves the most holy place. Our living, powerful, almighty God. So the location of the altar of incense shows us that he accepts prayers. At the gate of Eden, so to speak, is what the tabernacle represents. The holy of holies, the throne room of God, where the ark was set before this great thick veil. God wants to hear the prayers of his people. Now, ultimately... This is where God's redemption is leading us, and that is to a new Eden. Remember that which was lost in the original Eden, holy ground? Redemption is leading to a new Eden, a new heaven, a new earth, a cubed city we read in Revelation, the the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth, which describes it, is unimaginable. It's amazing. The city we read in Revelation measures 12,000 stadia in every direction. This is a cube. A 1,500 mile square cube. Now, keep in mind that the measurements in Revelation are what? Thank you. Symbolic. Symbolic measurements. So this shows for us symbolically a perfect cube when Christ comes back again. Interestingly, Revelation 21, um, the combined length of the four walls of the New Jerusalem, which this the Holy of Holies, and all this represents, foreshadows, I should say. Its combined length is 4 times 12,000, which is 144,000 stadia. Again, that number is symbolic. It means a number of absolute completeness. The number 1,000 in Revelation is symbolic, just like 7 is. 144,000, also symbolic. You don't want to read the book of Revelation and read all the numbers symbolically as you ought. And then when you get to the number 1,000, 144,000, all of a sudden it becomes literal. Okay? <laughs> Principle remains the same. It's, it's, they're symbolic. So this, this shows us perfect dimensions from a perfect God. And all of his people who've been perfected will dwell together in glory. How long? Forever. This is the truth he's unfolding way back, way back in Exodus. Now, directly behind this thick veil that was embroidered with cherubim upon it, which protect, that protect the 15-foot cubed space, was the ark with its mercy seat. Now, notice when we get to the New Testament in Hebrews what we read. Hebrews 9, three. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. Down in verse 23, it says these are copies of heavenly things. So here's what the Holy Spirit does here. By way of divine inspiration, he reveals to us us, through the inspired word that this altar was so close to the most holy place, he describes it as though it's in the most holy place. Did you catch that? But it wasn't. Exodus 30 says it was outside. Here, they are as good as together. So we see here a great connection. This is what's being described. A close association between the two. The prayers of God's people and God himself. What is it you think about prayer? How do you think about prayer? How often do you pray? Notice verses 7 and 8. The incense was to be burned every morning, a routine repeated at night. Now, if your prayer life isn't all that, I would suggest starting like this. Morning, evening. Amen? We'll talk more about that next week. Morning, evening. Get up, acknowledge God, thank Him, pray to Him, ask for wisdom, discernment, thank Him that you're saved. Thank Him for the glorious gospel. Go through your day, be mindful of God. When you shut down at night, pray. Pray. That'll be a great way to get you in the habit of praying. So here, the priests, on behalf of the people, burned incense in the morning and evening, which, of course, is symbolic of the fact that all day, every day, belongs to who? God. You don't breathe without him. He closes his hand, you're done. Cardiac arrest. Finished. He's the author of life. He sustains your life. He's the one that's given you eternal life. Let's thank Him. Amen? Let's praise Him. Verses 9 and 10, we see the instructions for the altar come with a warning. Notice this. There was not to be burned on this altar any unauthorized burning, we read, of incense. In verse 34 and following, from which Ryan read, uh, we see the recipe for incense. According to who? God, not the priest, God. So it had to have specific ingredients. This is the secret formula, if you will, to be burned up to the Lord. This is what he wants to smell, symbolic. This is what he wants to receive. He says it will be like this. Any other combination, he says, any other method is called unauthorized incense or strange fire. Now in Leviticus 10, Aaron's sons, two of the very first priests set apart for this duty, decided to change things up a bit. Perhaps they got bored with the routine, and they thought they'd become a little bit more creative in worship. After all, man, church is boring. We just come and we sing, and we pray, and the guy next to me sleeps, and then we read scripture again, and then we pray again, and then this guy gets up and preaches for 45 minutes. That's boring. That's boring. That, my friends, is God's prescribed way for God's people to worship. Period. So, whatever was the case, perhaps this routine became dry to them. So, Scripture says in Leviticus 10, they offered up unauthorized fire, and what happened? God made fire come up out of the altar and killed them. And as I said last Lord's Day, he instructed their father Aaron to not even weep for them. Is this serious? Is this serious business? God, it's serious to God? You know, if God dealt like that today in pulpits, there'd be a lot of dead preachers, a lot of or plexiglass stands because you know, after all, pulpits with crosses on them are too offensive. Too authoritative, so let's stand behind plexiglass. Well, let me tell you this if God dealt like that now, or like this now, you could be sure one of two things would happen to be a lot of dead preachers and a lot of perhaps repentant preachers out of fear of death, and they'd get back to preaching God's word. I wouldn't mind that He did, actually. Okay, incense. Back to incense. It's my little diatribe there. Applicable? It's applicable. Pass it on. (laughs) Okay, incense. Incense in both the Old and New Testaments are symbolic, or it is symbolic of a way to describe prayer. In Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 18, I think it is. You remember Zechariah, who's the father of John the Baptist? He was a priest. It was One of his duties at the time was to offer up incense. And we read in Luke 1, verse 10, that the whole multitude, while he served in this office, the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense. Incense. Why don't we burn incense today because this is symbolic. Christ fulfills this as we will see. All this stuff points to Christ. He fulfilled it all. So what we don't know um, 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 burning incense and all that nonsense. We don't need that. We preach Christ. So there was a connection you see in the minds of the people of God between prayer and the offering up of incense. A sweet-smelling what? Aroma into the nostrils of whom? God almighty. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 141, verse 1. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Notice that? The psalmist takes his own private prayers and he associates them with the offering up of incense by the lifting of his hands, worshiping the Lord. So, the, the raising of his hands correlates with the raising of the evening sacrifice that is uh, along with the, uh, the offering of incense. Rises up. Your prayers rise up into the presence of God, as we will see. Now, we see the same picture in the New Testament. Look at Revelation 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, who was worthy to take the scroll? John's given this vision. I looked around, the question went out, who's worthy to take the scroll? There was no one, and he wept. They looked all throughout the earth and under the earth, and no one was worthy, and then all of a sudden, it was the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what John heard, and then when John turned to think he was going to see a lion, what did he see? A lamb as though it had been slaughtered. He's the lion and the lamb. Another principle of rightly understanding Revelation, things aren't always as they appear. He heard lion, he saw lamb. Both true? Both true. One was worthy to, un, to open the seven-scrolled seal. Notice, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. That's Jesus. Each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. There it is. Which are what? The prayers of the saints. Who are the saints? You are. Anyone who's in Christ is a saint. Everyone else, they ain't. (laughs) Period. Revelation 8, verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. Hmm, where would they use that? And he was given much incense to offer up, to offer with the prayers of all the, who? Saints. On the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Throughout throughout the book of Revelation, we continually see temple imagery. Amen? Temple imagery. Garden imagery. We see here the holy of holies, the real holy of holies, the presence of God. The presence of the incarnate, glorified, Son of God, Jesus Christ. The only one worthy, not only to open the seven-sealed scroll, that means world history and what's going to happen, not only was he the one worthy to open it, he was the only one worthy to implement its content. <laughs> this is beautiful. All God's people. Now you've got to understand, Revelation is written to a heavy, heavily persecuted church. A persecuted people. So John's point here that we just read, he's saying this, although you may be being persecuted and you feel insignificant and marginalized, it is your prayers that your God is responding to. As history unfolds, your prayers are heard. Your prayers are received as sweet-smelling incense. Guess what? Things you prayed for 15 years ago that are according to the will of God, they're going to be answered, but you may never see the answer. Are you okay with that? you okay with that? So we learn here, God actually desires our prayers. Amen? Back to chapter 30, verse 1. You shall make. What is that? You shall is a what? It's a command. Suggestion? No, no it's a command. You shall make. And anything God commands, does he desire that? Yep. Whatever God commands, he desires. Whatever he desires, he commands. Amen? Amen. Pray. Prayer's not an option for the believer. It's not an add-on for our life. It's essential. You know, Christians who fall out of fellowship, Christians who disappear from fellowship, Christians who disappear from sitting under the word of God, you can sure count on the fact that their prayer life is not a priority. It can't be. Now, oftentimes, we don't think rightly about prayer because we think wrongly about God. Amen? We'll take one truth about God, And we'll we'll ignore other truths that lead to wrong ideas about God. It happens to us all the time. Some will say, you know, God is sovereign. Is he sovereign? Over everything? Yeah. But some will say, well, God is sovereign, so if he knows all things, including what I'm going to pray, and what I'm going to do, and what's going to be done tomorrow, why pray? That's their stupid conclusion. Did he just say stupid? Yeah, stupid. You know, they'll say, you know, prayer isn't really necessary. Prayer prayer isn't really essential. Because, you know, after all, I can't add to the knowledge uh, of God. I can't add anything to his base of understanding, which is everlasting. Is that true? It's true. You're not going to add anything to it. But the reality is, prayer isn't as much for God as it is for you and me. For us to grow in the grace and understanding of our Redeemer. The grace and understanding of our Lord. Prayer changes us. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. We pray for God to change people's hearts. Amen? Can it be changed without God's intervening work? No. No. Well, then, he had to have ordained that in eternity past. That's right. But you don't know that. And as you pray, what do you declare? Your allegiance to God, number one, when we pray, we're declaring our allegiance. Number two, we're declaring our absolute dependence upon Him. You're not independent. Don't think you're independent, amen? As soon as I find myself faltering and stumbling around like a drunk pirate, metaphorically speaking, spiritually speaking, right? I have to drive myself back to prayer. To, to show in, of myself more than anyone that I 'm dependent upon him, I need His wisdom, I need discernment. I'm a fallen human being, declared righteous. Amen. And you're going to learn in a little while that when God looks at you, He sees Jesus, because you're one in the Son. But are you as wise as Jesus? Of course not. He's infinite, you're finite. So we declare our allegiance, we declare our dependence, that he's our savior, that he's our provider. So we go to him in prayer. We don't know everything. You know, prayer is is the breath of true spiritual life. Okay, you have to breathe to live physically, amen? You know, even if you hold your breath and pass out, like I knew this neighbor kid of mine, when he didn't want to do something, his mom said he'd stand at the top of his stairs and hold his breath till he passed out. And he'd fall down the stairs and get hurt. And finally, his mom just said, go for it. (laughs) Fool. But you know what happened when he came to? He was breathing again. It's natural. We have to breathe. Look, physically, we have to breathe to live. Spiritually, we have to pray. To be healthy, spiritually, we must pray. So the ever-present, all-knowing, self-sufficient creator who needs nothing from anyone, we read here, actually desires to hear the prayers of his redeemed people. It's a command. He's a father to his children, amen? He's a father to his children. He's a bride to his groom. All you folks that are married. Your marriage and the covenant of your marriage is a reflection of Christ in his church. Ephesians 5, amen? Notice this, only those who pray in Jesus' name, okay, not as a magic formula, only those who pray in Jesus' name are heard. You don't slap it on at the end of a prayer, Lord, I pray to be rich, I pray to have a boat, I pray to have a house, I pray to have a castle, I pray to have a good day, in Jesus' name. That's folly. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying on the basis of the merit and worth of God's son in our place. This provides access. God does not, news for you, God does not hear the prayers of Muslims. God does not hear the prayers of Jews. God does not hear the prayers of Hindu people who do not call upon him in the name of his only son. Period. Now, in, in, in a sense, God does hear everyone's prayer because he's sovereign. Amen? As a matter of fact, Philip Ryken puts it like this. Quote, there is nothing that anyone ever says that escapes his notice. Not one cry for help, not one desperate plea, not one invocation goes unnoticed. Of course, God hears everything. End quote. However, that's not the question at hand this morning, beloved. Okay? The question is, whether or not the one true almighty God accepts every prayer with the same fatherly concern. Guess what? He does not. So what then does it take for God to accept one's prayer? Is it to attach a postscript in Jesus' name? No. What makes it acceptable? Access to God, beloved, in prayer depends on having atonement made For our sins. Are you with me? That's the depending factor. Sin separates us from God, it separates His creatures from the Creator. And forgiveness comes only through the shedding of innocent blood, not your blood, innocent blood. So as the Lord's desire for His people is to pray to Him, here in the Old Testament, He's progressively making known His provision for them. Through the sacrifice of a what? Of a slaughtered lamb. Foreshadowed through these altars. The altar of sacrifice and here the altar of incense. Now again, remember, the bronze altar, follow me through. The bronze altars outside. And it served to remind the people of Israel that death was necessary for propitiation and expiation. Propitiation is satisfaction vertical of God's wrath against sin and the sinner. Expiation is the removal of sin from the sinner, the penalty of sin. So the golden altar of incense, it was inside. The bronze altar, sacrifice outside, the golden altar of incense inside, and it burned the sweet smelling fragrance. With frankincense, which served as a picture of sweet, follow me, communion. So here the priest served before this table, before this thick veil in the most holy place. But first, something had to happen. What had to be made outside? Atonement, sacrifice. Sacrifice. On the bronze altar. So the altar of sacrifice outside is different from the altar of incense inside. You can't get to that altar of incense as a priest until the sacrifice was made outside. Okay? Follow me. Don't don't lose me. You see, what happened was the priest had to offer up the sacrifice slit the throat of the lamb, tie it down on the altar, slit its throat, shed its blood, sprinkle some of it on the horns of the altar outside, go to the bronze laver, wash the blood off his hands and symbolically wash himself ceremonially so he can enter the holy place and then he would take blood and he would sprinkle it once a year on the golden altar of incense. On behalf of who? The people. So the altar of incense... Could not be used until the altar of sacrifice had done its work. Are you with me? Good. So the old covenant priest. Okay, again, he would meet the worship. You're the worshipper. Okay, I'm not a priest, but let's just pretend I'm one. Old covenant. Joe, you're the, you're the worshipper. You come with your little lamb. We check it out. It's not missing an eye. It's not missing a leg. It's flawless, right? So you bring her in. It's roped up. You tie it down to the four horns of the altar. I slit its throat. Sprinkle some of his blood on the altar. The fire is going. Now it's a barbecue. Literally, it's a barbecue under the Lord. It's a sacrifice, burnt offering under the Lord. So now, after atonement was made, the priest would wash. He'd go into the holy place, and he would step between the table and, that held the lampstand, the table that held the bread. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the bread of life. And he would go into the golden altar of incense, sprinkle some of that blood once a year upon that altar, and then offer up communion prayers to Almighty God. Beautiful. Notice. The sacrifice that was made was made on behalf of who? Israel. He did not make atonement for the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, or the Amorites. Amen? Amen. He, he made atonement for God's covenant-elect people, Israel. And then he went and prayed for who? Israel. Israel. The ones he made atonement for, he then went and prayed for. Now, of course, ultimately, beloved, this all points to the intercessory prayer That I read from this morning of our Lord Jesus Christ so beautifully expressed in John chapter what? 17. Never forget it. Go home and read it again. Listen to some highlights. Father, I have manifested your name to the people you have, what? Given me out of the world. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one. Old covenant believers, new covenant believers, we all may be one. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the what? World. In John 17, Jesus, our great high priest, lifts up to the Father this glorious prayer after he prays, just as the old covenant priest ascended into the place of prayer, Jesus ascends to Mount Calvary, the cross. Calvary. Calvary. To make atonement. To make propitiation. Satisfaction to God. That is His wrath against sin and the sinner. And expiation, the removal of sins. He makes atonement on the cross. For who? The people He just prayed for. Okay? Those for whom He just prayed. Those given to Him by the Father. Did He pray for the world? Did He pray for the world? No. No. Did he then make atonement for the world without exception? No. He made atonement for the world without distinction. In other words, he he came to die for the very people, God's elect, from throughout the world, given to him by the Father. You see how beautiful this is? This is how special you are to God, believer, believer. He he chose me? Yeah. He knew me before the foundation of the world? Yeah. Jesus prayed for me that night, hours before the cross? Answer? Yes. And then he went and what? Made atonement for you. You see this? This shows us, beloved, this is a theological heavy point. People don't like to accept, but it's biblical. I just read it. This means that atonement is not universal. It's definite. It is definite. It's deliberate. We could say it's limited to the very ones for whom Jesus prayed. That's the beauty of it. In other words, Jesus died only for those given to him of the Father and not for the whole world without exception. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yes. For the whole world without distinction. You get it? Because God chose to save some throughout the whole world. You're part of that. So you can rejoice in that. That's a heavy theological thing. Are you winded? I'm winded. Rest in it. Now, that reality, again, going back to the Old Covenant, is typified by the high priest who prayed only for Israel, and those for whom he prayed he went and made atonement for. Jesus reverses it. He prays, and then he makes atonement. Why? Because Jesus didn't have to wash in a laver. Because he's pure. He didn't have to wash. The old covenant priest had to make atonement, not only for Israel, but for himself. Jesus didn't have to make atonement for himself. So he prayed first, and then he went up Mount Calvary and laid his life down, making atonement, making your salvation definite. If you argue with that, your argument's with the word. Not Pacific Oak Church, and not me. This is how special you are in the eyes of God. God is your salvation. Look at Psalm 78, or 62, verses 7 and 8. On God rests my salvation. On God rests my glory. My mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times. Though people, pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Now, therefore, this is a big therefore, because we are in Christ in a living, loving union with our Savior, not only are we loved and accepted by the Father, but actually cherished by the Father as much as He cherishes His Son. Because you're in the Son. This is how much He loves you. Listen to Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. Are you saved? Okay. A mighty one who will save you. And you know what he does over you? He rejoices over you with gladness. You see that? You see God like that? He rejoices over you? He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God sings over you. Loudly. John 16, 27. The Father himself, he said to the disciples, loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now, on the basis of Christ's work, We are also heard of the Father. He hears you. He hears and receives our prayer. Well, what about my inarticulate prayers? What about those jumbled little popcorn pop-up prayers? What about my quick cries? What about, you know, in the midst of all my confusion? Guess what, Christian? God accepts them. He hears them. They're lifted up and they're sanctified because you're in Christ. you're in Christ, that's why you're heard. And he receives them. Why? Because Hebrews 7.25 says this, follow me on, this is another theological point. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you. Okay, follow me here. Intercession is not prayer. Okay, hear me. Intercession is not prayer. Intercessory prayer is prayer. John 17 is an intercessory prayer on your behalf, still being fulfilled, Amen? Intercession isn't prayer. Intercessory prayer is prayer. Intercession is mediation. Intercession is representation. Intercession means to represent. Okay, you were born a sinner, amen? You were born in the first Adam, right? You have sin and you're a sinner because you're in the first Adam. But you're no longer simply in the first Adam, amen? If you're in Christ, you're in the last Adam. So, here now, Christ stands to represent, is to represent. He represents you as being in the last Adam. Scripture calls Jesus the last Adam, the second Adam. You are no longer seen as being in the first Adam. Listen to this. As fallen, sinful, separated from God. You are no longer, as Ephesians 2, 3 says, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, isn't this great? Do you like this? Have I lost you today? Do you like this? Okay, check this out. This is beautiful. This is you. This is how he sees you. Ephesians 2, 3. By nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, you are no longer that, because you're in Christ. He has made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Therefore, Jesus represents you to the Father, Right, He represents you as being in the second Adam. You are no longer represented as being in the first Adam. He intercedes for you. He mediates for you. He stands in place of you before the Father because you're in him. Therefore, you can pray. Because he intercedes for you. He represents you. Therefore, you can pray. It's not that Jesus is praying for you. He intercedes for you so you can pray. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask in the the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. He's talking to his disciples same night in the upper room is John 17. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, you'll receive it, that your joy may be full. Look at verse 26. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Did you catch that? I do not say I'm going to ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you loved me. Now you're in me and I represent you in me, the second Adam. So you're heard. Is it rich? The great high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17 has been answered and is being answered. Why? Because there's still people coming to faith in Christ. Those who will believe through your word, he said to his apostles. Still being answered. That means it had eternal significance when he prayed it because he's the eternal son of God. And now he intercedes for you so you can pray. Okay, are you ready for the last point? What does it mean for us? It grants us the opportunity and ability and privilege to pray as we ought. To pray as we ought, directly to the Father. Because he always represents us rightly. What about when I mess up? He still represents you rightly because you're in him. Notice this. Likewise, Romans eight twenty six. the spirit helps in our weakness for we do not know what we ought to praise we ought, what to praise we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Okay, Christ intercedes for us. That means he represents you. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, intercedes for you as regards prayer when you're groaning and anxious and don't know what to pray. He takes those groanings and he he transfers them into the throne room of God. He communicates what you're trying to say according to the will of God perfectly. Are you with me? For example... While I'm doing the work of intercessory prayer, that means I'm praying on behalf of someone else because I have direct access to the Father because Jesus represents me. He's interceding for me, representing me. As I pray, as I'm crying out to God, do I always know what His good and perfect will is, like providentially? No, I don't. I don't always know. So as I'm praying for someone according to His will, and I'm praying for myself, which I think is according to his will this day. And yet, it's not the best for me. Or it's not the best for the person I'm praying for. Guess what the Holy Spirit does? He takes that jumbled stuff. And he intercedes according to the will of God's, God's perfect will. And, and, and takes it into the throne room of heaven like a sweet smelling incense on your behalf. You get it? It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So in those times of confusion or in the perplexity of our ignorance, as we call out to God with groaning, whether those groanings are expressed out loud or internally, we need not despair, but we can depend upon God the Holy Spirit who takes that groan and that, oh God, and he communicates it perfectly. According to whose will? God's will. Even if I'm praying not according to His will, He transforms it. Does that mean I don't need to learn how to pray according to the will of God? No, we want to grow in the grace and understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ and pray accordingly. So, what about the timing of prayer? I'm almost done. You're exhausted. I can see it. So am I. Follow me. God's going to hear your prayers and He's going to answer your prayers because you're in Christ, right? That is, prayers according to his will. But what about the timing? Listen to Stephen Haskell from his work, The Cross and Its Shadow. Quote, not all prayers that are accepted before God are answered immediately, as it would not always be best for us. But every prayer to which the fragrance of Christ's righteousness has been added is lodged on heaven's altar, and in God's good time, it will be answered. Amen, glory to God, hallelujah. Pentecostal hallelujah. (laughs) Our risen, ascended Savior intercedes so we can pray, but assures us, nonetheless, our prayers are being heard. That's the intercessory work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He intercedes so we can pray. And then the Holy Spirit takes stuff that isn't clear in our own heads and ushers it into the throne room of heaven. Listen to this. Hebrews 10.19 We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his what? flesh. He was crucified. When Jesus died on the cross and took his last breath, what happened to that thick curtain in the temple in Jerusalem? It was torn. From where? Top to bottom. So we can boldly enter into the throne of grace and pray to God because Christ intercedes for us and we're one in him. So we can lift up our prayers to God. So Jesus intercedes so we can pray. We're able to do the work of intercessory prayer because Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. That is a proper presentation, representation of us before the Father. So God has prescribed, and here I close, God has prescribed the recipe of sweet-smelling aroma and we ought, dare not, beloved, offer anything else other than the incense He prescribes. No mixture will do, beloved. It is Christ alone. It's all Christ. It's Christ crucified. All pictured through these furnishings of the tabernacle. That's the mixture that need not be messed with and better not be messed with. It's in Christ, in Christ alone. Amen? Listen to this. Jesus, our Redeemer, He is the burnt offering. He is the cleansing bronze laver. He is the eternal lampstand. He is the bread of life that the table of showbread represents. He's the sweet-smelling aroma of incense unto the Father. And He is the very mercy seat and the Holy One and the Holy of Holies. Glorified, now and forevermore. That's how important the Old Testament is. Without the Old Testament, you have no New Testament. And you can't understand Christ without it. Jesus Christ... Revelation 1, the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom. Notice next, priests, you don't need a priest, you are the priest, because you're in Christ, the great high priest, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. We all together say, Amen. amen, glory to God, happy thanksgiving. That's my Thanksgiving message. (laughs) So, if you struggle with prayer, we're going to talk more about prayer next week. Some very practical, down-to-earth, not this heavy theological stuff, which is just as important. We're going to get down to the nitty-gritty of prayer, how God loves it, and some principles for you in praying. And I would say, until next week, start morning, evening. And start with thanksgiving. Because Thanksgiving's on the horizon. Let us thank our Lord for what we have, who we have, who we are in Him, for His glory and for your good.